Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. The great romantic swashbuckler set against the backdrop of the French Revolution. This is the 10th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. The great romantic swashbuckler set against the backdrop of the French Revolution. This is the 10th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. Chapter 13. Either or. The few words which Marguerite Blakeney had managed to read on the half-scorched piece of paper seemed literally to be the words of fate. Start myself tomorrow. This she had read quite distinctly. Then came a blur caused by the smoke of the candle which obliterated the next few words. But right at the bottom... There was another sentence, like letters of fire before her mental vision. If you wish to speak to me again, I shall be in the supper room at one o'clock precisely. The whole was signed with the hastily scrawled little device, a tiny star-shaped flower which had become so familiar to her. One o'clock precisely. It was now close upon eleven. The last minuet was being danced, with Sir Andrew Fawkes and beautiful Lady Blakeney leading the couples through its delicate and intricate figures. Close upon eleven, the hands of the handsome Louis XV clock upon its ormolu bracket seemed to move along with maddening rapidity. Two hours more, and her fate and that of Armand would be sealed. In two hours... She must make up her mind whether she will keep the knowledge so cunningly gained to herself and leave her brother to his fate, or whether she will willfully betray a brave man whose life was devoted to his fellow men, who was noble, generous, and, above all, unsuspecting. It seemed a horrible thing to do. But then there was Armand. Armand, too, was noble and brave. Armand, too, was unsuspecting. And Armand loved her, would have willingly trusted his life in her hands, and now, when she could save him from death, she hesitated. Oh, it was monstrous, her brother's kind, gentle face, so full of love for her, seemed to be looking reproachfully at her. You might have saved me, Margot, he seemed to say to her, and you chose the life of a stranger. "'A man you do not know, whom you have never seen, "'and preferred that he should be safe, whilst you sent me to the guillotine.' "'All these conflicting thoughts raged through Marguerite's brain, "'while, with a smile upon her lips, "'she glided through the graceful mazes of the minuet. "'She noted, with that acute sense of hers, "'that she had succeeded in completely allaying Sir Andrew's fears. "'Her self-control had been absolutely perfect.' 
She was a finer actress at this moment and throughout the whole of this minuet than she had ever been upon the boards of the Comédie Française. But then, a beloved brother's life had not depended upon her histrionic powers. She was too clever to overdo her part, and made no further allusions to the supposed billet-doux which had caused Sir Andrew Fawkes such an agonizing five minutes. She watched his anxiety melting away under her sunny smile, and soon perceived that, whatever doubt may have crossed his mind at the moment, she had, by the time the last bars of the minuet had played, succeeded in completely dispelling it. He never realized in what a fever of excitement she was, what effort it cost her to keep up a constant ripple of banal conversation. When the minuet was over, she asked Sir Andrew to take her into the next room. "'I have promised to go down to supper with His Royal Highness,' she said. "'But before we part, tell me, am I forgiven?' "'Forgiven? Yes. Confess. I gave you a fright just now.' But remember, I am not an English woman, and I do not look upon the exchanging of beer doux as a crime, and I vow I'll not tell my little Suzanne. But now, tell me, shall I welcome you at my water party on Wednesday? I uh, am not sure, Lady Blakeney, he replied evasively. I, I may have to leave London tomorrow. I would not do that if I were you, she said earnestly. Then, seeing the anxious look reappearing in his eyes, she added gaily, "'No one can throw a ball better than you can, Sir Andrew. We should so miss you on the bowling green.' He had led her across the room to one beyond, where already His Royal Highness was waiting for the beautiful Lady Blakeney. "'Madame, supper awaits us.' said the prince, offering his arm to Marguerite, and I am full of hope. The goddess fortune has frowned so persistently on me at hazard that I look with confidence for the smiles of the goddess of beauty. Your highness has been unfortunate at the card tables, asked Marguerite as she took the prince's arm. I, most unfortunate, Blakeney, not content with being the richest amongst my father's subjects, has also the most outrageous luck. <laughs> By the way, where is that inimitable wit? I vow, madame, that this life would be but a dreary desert without your smiles and his sallies. Chapter 14 One O'Clock Precisely Supper had been extremely gay. All those present declared that never had Lady Blakeney been more adorable, nor that damned idiot Sir Percy more amusing. His Royal Highness had laughed until the tears streamed down his cheeks at Blakeney's foolish yet funny repartees. His doggerel verse, "'We sick him here, we sick him there,' etc., was sung to the tune of Ho, Merry Britons, and to the accompaniment of glasses knocked loudly against the table. Lord Grenville, moreover, had a most perfect cook. Some wags asserted that he was a scion of the old French noblesse, who, having lost his fortune, had come to seek it in the cuisine of the foreign office. Margaret Marguerite Blakeney was in her most brilliant mood, and surely not a soul in that crowded supper-room had even an inkling of the terrible struggle which was raging within her heart. The clock was ticking so mercilessly on. It was long past midnight, and even the Prince of Wales was thinking of leaving the supper-table. 
Within the next half hour, the destinies of two brave men would be pitted against one another. The dearly beloved brother, and he, the unknown hero. Marguerite had not tried to see Chauvelin during this last hour. She knew that his keen, fox-like eyes would terrify her at once and incline the balance of her decision towards Armand. While she did not see him, there still lingered in her heart of hearts a vague, undefined hope that something would occur, something big, enormous, epoch-making, which would shift from her young shoulders this terrible burden of responsibility, of having to choose between two such cruel alternatives. But the minutes ticked on with that dull monotony which they invariably seem to assume when our very nerves ache with their incessant ticking. After supper, dancing was resumed. His Royal Highness had left, and there was general talk of departing among the older guests. The young were indefatigable, and had started on a new gavotte which would fill the next quarter of an hour. Marguerite did not feel equal to another dance. There is a limit to the most enduring of self-control. Escorted by a cabinet minister, she had once more found her way to the tiny boudoir, still the most deserted amongst all the rooms. She knew that Chauvelin must be lying in wait for her somewhere, ready to seize the first possible opportunity for a tete-a-tete. His eyes had met hers for a moment after the four-supper minuet, and she knew that the keen diplomat, with those searching, pale eyes of his, had divined that her work was accomplished. Fate had willed it so. Marguerite, torn by the most terrible conflict heart of woman can ever know, had resigned herself to its decrease. But Armand must be saved at any cost. He, first of all, for he was her brother, had been mother, father, friend to her ever since she, a tiny babe, had lost both her parents. To think of Armand dying a traitor's death on the guillotine was too horrible even to dwell upon. Impossible, in fact. That could never be. Never. As for the stranger, the hero, well, there let fate decide. Marguerite would redeem her brother's life at the hands of the relentless enemy, then let that cunning Scarlet Pimpernel extricate himself after that. Perhaps, vaguely, Marguerite hoped that the daring plotter, who for so many months had baffled an army of spies, would still manage to evade Chauvelin and remain immune to the end. She thought of all this as she sat listening to the witty discourse of the cabinet minister, who, no doubt, felt that he had found in Lady Blakeney a most perfect listener. Suddenly, she saw the keen, fox-like face of Chauvelin peeping through the curtained doorway. "'Lord Fadcourt,' she said to the minister, "'will you do me a service?' "'I am entirely at your ladyship's service.' he replied gallantly. "'Will you see if my husband is still in the card-room? And if he is, will you tell him that I am very tired and would be glad to go home soon?' The commands of a beautiful woman are binding on all mankind, even on cabinet ministers. Lord Fancourt prepared to obey instantly. "'I do not like to leave your ladyship alone,' he said. Oh, never fear. I shall be quite safe here, and I think undisturbed. 
"'But I am really tired. "'You know, Sir Percy will drive back to Richmond. "'It is a long way, and we shall not, and we do not hurry, "'get home before daybreak.' "'Lord Fancourt had perforce to go. "'The moment he had disappeared, "'Chauvelin slipped into the room, "'and the next instant stood calm and impassive by her side. "'You have news for me?' he said. An icy mantle seemed to have suddenly settled around Marguerite's shoulders. Though her cheeks glowed with fire, she felt chilled and numbed. Oh, Armand, will you ever know the terrible sacrifice of pride, of dignity, of womanliness a devoted sister is making for your sake? Nothing of importance, she said, staring mechanically before her. But it might prove a clue. I contrived no matter how, to detect Sir Andrew Fawkes in the very act of burning a paper at one of those candles in this very room. That paper I succeeded in holding between my fingers for the space of two minutes, and to cast my eyes on it for that of ten seconds. Time enough to learn its contents? asked Chauvelin. She nodded then continued in the same even mechanical tone of voice. In the corner of the paper there was the usual rough device of a small star-shaped flower. Above it I read two lines. Everything else was scorched and blackened by the flame. And what were the two lines? Her throat seemed suddenly to have contracted. For an instant she felt that she could not speak the words which might send a brave man to his death. "'It is lucky that the whole paper was not burned,' said Chauvelin, with dry sarcasm, "'for it might have fared ill with Armand Saint-Just. "'What were the two lines, citoyen?' "'One was, I start myself to-morrow,' she said. "'The other, if you wish to speak to me, I shall be in the supper-room at one o'clock precisely.' Chauvelin looked up at the clock just above the mantelpiece. "'Then I have plenty of time.' "'What are you going to do?' "'She was pale as a statue. "'Her hands were icy cold. "'Her head and heart throbbed with the awful strain upon her nerves. "'Oh, this was cruel. "'Cruel. "'What had she done to have deserved all this? "'Her choice was made. "'Had she done a vile action or one that was sublime? "'The recording angel who writes in the Book of Gold alone could give an answer.' "'What are you going to do?' "'Oh, nothing for the present. "'After that it will depend. "'On what?' "'On whom I shall see in the supper-room at one o'clock precisely. "'You will see the Scarlet Pimpernel, of course, but you do not know him. "'No, but I shall presently. "'Sir Andrew will have warned him. "'I think not. "'When you parted from him after the minuet, he stood and watched you for a moment or two, with a look which gave me to understand that something had happened between you. It was only natural, was it not, that I should make a shrewd guess as to the nature of that something. I thereupon engaged the young man in a long and animated conversation. We discussed Herr Gluck's singular success in London, until a lady claimed his arm for supper. Since then— I did not lose sight of him through supper. 
When we all came upstairs again, Lady Portal's buttonholed him and started on the subject of pretty Mademoiselle Suzanne de Tony. I knew he would not move until Lady Portal's had exhausted on the subject, which will not be for another quarter of an hour at least, and it is five minutes to one now. He was preparing to go and went up to the doorway, where, drawing aside the curtain, he stood for a moment, pointing out to Marguerite the distant figure of Sir Andrew Fuchs in close conversation with Lady Portals. "'I think,' he said, with a triumphant smile, "'that I may safely expect to find the person I seek in the dining-room, fair lady. "'There may be more than one. Whoever is there.' As the clock strikes one, we'll be shadowed by one of my men. Of these one, or perhaps two, or even three, will leave for France tomorrow. One of these will be the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes, and I also, fair lady, will leave for France tomorrow. The papers found at Dover upon the person of Sir Andrew Fawkes speak of the neighbourhood of Calais, of an inn which I know well called Le Chat Gris of a lonely place somewhere on the coast, the Père Blanchard's hut, which I must endeavour to find. All these places are given as the point where this meddlesome Englishman has bidden the traitor de Tournay and others to meet his emissaries. But it seems that he has decided not to send his emissaries, that he will start himself tomorrow. Hmm. Now, one of these persons whom I shall see anon in the supper-room will be journeying to Calais, and I shall follow that person until I have tracked him to where those fugitive aristocrats await him. For that person, fair lady, will be the man whom I have sought for for nearly a year, the man whose energies has outdone me, whose ingenuity has baffled me, whose audacity has set me wondering. Yes! Me, who have seen a trick or two in my time, the mysterious and elusive Scarlet Pimpernel. And, Alma, have I ever broken my word? I promise you that the day the Scarlet Pimpernel and I start for France, I will send you that imprudent letter of his by special courier. More than that, I will pledge you the word of France that the day I lay hands on that meddlesome Englishman, Saint-Just will be here in England, safe in the arms of his charming sister. And with a deep and elaborate bow, and another look at the clock, Chauvelin glided out of the room. It seemed to Marguerite that through all the noise, all the dim of music, dancing and laughter, she could hear his cat-like tread gliding through the vast reception rooms, that she could hear him go down the massive staircase, reach the dining room and open the door. Fate had decided, had made her speak, had made her do a vile and abominable thing for the sake of the brother she loved. She lay back in her chair. Passive and still, seeing the figure of her relentless enemy ever present before her aching eyes. When Chauvelin reached the supper room, it was quite deserted. It had that woe-begone, forsaken, tawdry appearance which reminds one so much of a ball dress the morning after. Half-empty glasses littered the table. Unfolded napkins lay about. 
The chairs turned towards one another in groups of twos and threes, very close to one another, in the far corners of the room, which spoke of recent whispered flirtations, over cold game pie and champagne. There were sets of three and four chairs that recalled pleasant animated discussions over the latest scandal. There were chairs straight up in a row that still looked starchy, critical, acid, like an antiquated dowager. There were a few isolated single chairs, close to the table, that spoke of gourmands intent on the most recherché dishes, and others overturned on the floor, that spoke volumes on the subject of my lord Grenville's cellars. It was a ghost-like replica, in fact, of that fashionable gathering upstairs, a ghost that haunts every house where balls and good suppers are given. A picture drawn with white chalk on grey cardboard, dull and colourless, now that the bright silk dresses and gorgeously embroidered coats were no longer there to fill in the background, and now that the candles flickered sleepily in their sockets. Joanna smiled benignly, and rubbing his long, thin hands together, he looked round the deserted supper-room, whence even the last flunky had retired in order to join his friends in the hall below. All was silence in the dimly lighted room, whilst the sound of the gavotte, the hum of distant talk and laughter, and the rumble of an occasional coach outside only seemed to reach this palace of the sleeping beauty as the murmur of some flitting spooks far away. It all looked so peaceful, so luxurious, and so still, that the keenest observer a veritable prophet could never have guessed that, at this present moment, that deserted supper-room was nothing but a trap laid for the capture of the most cunning and audacious plotter those stirring times had ever seen. Chauvelin pondered and tried to peer into the immediate future. What would this man be like, whom he and the leaders of the whole revolution had sworn to bring to his death— Everything about him was weird and mysterious. His personality, which he so cunningly concealed, the power he wielded over nineteen English gentlemen who seemed to obey his every command blindly and enthusiastically, the passionate love and submission he had roused in his little train band, and above all, his marvellous audacity, the boundless impudence which had caused him to beard his most implacable enemies within the very walls of Paris. No wonder that in France the sobriquet of the mysterious Englishman roused in the people a superstitious shudder. Chauvelin himself, as he gazed round the deserted room, where presently the weird hero would appear, felt a strange feeling of awe creeping all down his spine. But his plans were well laid. He felt sure that the Scarlet Pimpernel had not been warned, and felt equally sure that Marguerite Blakeney had not played him false. If she had... A cruel look that would have made her shudder gleamed in Chauvelin's keen, pale eyes. If she had played him a trick, Armand Saint-Just would suffer the extreme penalty. But no, 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 of course, she had not played him false. Fortunately, the supper-room was deserted. This would make Chauvelin's task all the easier when presently that unsuspecting enigma would enter it alone. No one was here now save Chauvelin himself. 
Stay, as he surveyed with a satisfied smile the solitude of the room, the cunning agent of the French government became aware of the peaceful, monotonous breathing of some one of my Lord Grenville's guests, who, no doubt, had supped both wisely and well, and was enjoying a quiet sleep away from the din of the dancing above. Chauvelin looked round once more, and there, in the corner of a sofa, in the dark angle of the room, his mouth open, his eyes shut, the sweet sounds of peaceful slumbers proceeding from his nostrils, reclined the gorgeously apparelled, long-limbed husband of the cleverest woman in Europe. Chauvelin looked at him as he lay there, placid, unconscious, at peace with all the world and himself, after the best of suppers, and a smile that was almost one of pity softened for a moment the hard lines of the Frenchman's face and the sarcastic twinkle of his pale eyes. Evidently the slumberer, deep in dreamless sleep, would not interfere with Chauvelin's trap for catching that cunning scarlet pimpernel. Again, he rubbed his hands together, and following the example of Sir Percy Blakeney, he too stretched himself out in the corner of another sofa, shut his eyes, opened his mouth, and gave forth sounds of peaceful breathing, and waited. Chapter 15 Doubt Marguerite Blakeney had watched the slight sable-clad figure of Chauvelin as he worked his way through the ballroom. Then, perforce, she had to wait while her nerves tingled with excitement. Listlessly, she sat in the small, still-deserted boudoir, looking out through the curtained doorway on the dancing couples beyond, looking at them, yet seeing nothing, hearing the music, yet conscious of naught save a feeling of expectancy of anxious, weary waiting. Her mind conjured up before her the vision of what was, perhaps at this very moment, passing downstairs. The half-deserted dining-room, the fateful hour, Chauvelin on the watch, then, precise to the moment, the entrance of a man. He, the Scarlet Pimpernel, the mysterious leader, who to Marguerite had become almost unreal, so strange, so weird was this hidden identity. She wished she were in the supper-room too at this moment, watching him as he entered. She knew that her woman's penetration would at once recognize in the stranger's face, whoever he might be, that strong individuality which belongs to a leader of men, to a hero, to the mighty high-soaring eagle whose daring wings were becoming entangled in this ferret's trap. Woman-like, she thought of him with unmixed sadness. The irony of that fate seemed so cruel, which allowed the fearless lion to succumb to the gnawing of a rat. Oh, had Armand's life not been at stake? Faith, your ladyship must have thought me very remiss, said a voice suddenly, close to her elbow. I had a difficulty in delivering your message, for I could not find Blakeney anywhere at first. Marguerite had forgotten all about her husband and her message to him. His very name, as spoken by Lord Vancourt, sounded strange and unfamiliar to her. So completely had she, in the last five minutes, lived her old life in the Rue de Richelieu again, with Armand always near. 
to love and protect her, to guard her from the many subtle intrigues which were forever raging in Paris in those days. I did find him at last, continued Lord Fancourt, and gave him your message. He said that he would give orders at once for the horses to be put to. Ah, she said, still very absently, you found my husband and gave him my message? Yes, he was in the dining-room fast asleep. <laughs> I could not manage to wake him up at first. Oh, thank you very much, she said mechanically, trying to collect her thoughts. Will your ladyship honour me with the contredance until your coach is ready? asked Lord Vancourt. No, I thank you, my lord, and you will forgive me. I really am too tired, and the heat in the ballroom has become so oppressive. The conservatory is deliciously cool. Let me take you there, and then get you something. You seem ailing, Lady Blakeney. I am only very tired, she repeated wearily, as she allowed Lord Fancourt to lead her where subdued lights and green plants lent coolness to the air. He got her a chair, into which she sank. This long interval of waiting was intolerable. Why did not Chauvelin come and tell her the result of his watch? Lord Fancourt was very attentive. She scarcely heard what he said, and suddenly startled him by asking abruptly, Lord Fancourt, did you perceive who was in the dining-room just now, besides Sir Percy Blakeney? Only the agent of the French government, Monsieur Chauvelin, equally fast asleep in another corner. Why does your ladyship ask? <laughs> I know not. I... <sighs> Did you notice the time when you were there? It must have been about five or ten minutes past one. I wonder what your ladyship is thinking about, he added, for evidently the fair lady's thoughts were very far away, and she had not been listening to his intellectual conversation. But indeed, her thoughts were not very far away. Only one story below, in this same house, in the dining-room where sat Chauvelin, still on the watch, had he failed? For one instant that possibility rose before her as a hope, the hope that the Scarlet Pimpernel had been worn by Sir Andrew, and that Chauvelin's trap had failed to catch his bird. But that hope soon gave way to fear. Had he failed? But then, Alma! Lord Fancourt had given up talking since he found that he had no listener. He wanted an opportunity for slipping away, for sitting opposite to a lady, however fair, who was evidently not heeding the most vigorous efforts made for her entertainment, is not exhilarating, even to a cabinet minister. "'Shall I find out if your ladyship's coach is ready?' he said at last. "'Oh, thank you, thank you, if you would be so kind. I, "'I fear I am but sorry company, but I am really tired, "'and perhaps would be best alone.' "'But Lord Fancourt went, and still Chauvelin did not come. "'What had happened? "'She felt Armand's fate trembling in the balance. "'She feared, now with a deadly fear, that Chauvelin had failed.' and that the mysterious Scarlet Pimpernel had proved elusive once more. Then she knew that she need hope for no pity, no mercy from him. He had pronounced his either-or, and nothing less would content him. 
He was very spiteful, and would affect the belief that she had willfully misled him, and having failed to trap the eagle once again, his revengeful mind would be content with the humble prey, Amma. Yet she had done her best, had strained every nerve for Amma's sake. She could not bear to think that all had failed. She could not sit still. She wanted to go and hear the worst at once. She wondered even that Chauvelin had not come yet to vent his wrath and satire upon her. Lord Grenfell himself came presently to tell her that her coach was ready, and that Sir Percy was already waiting for her, ribbons in hand. Marguerite said, Farewell, to her distinguished host. Many of her friends stopped her as she crossed the rooms to talk to her and exchange pleasant au revoirs. The minister only took final leave of beautiful Lady Blakeney on the top of the stairs. Below, on the landing, a veritable army of gallant gentlemen were waiting to bid goodbye to the Queen of Beauty and Fashion, whilst outside, under the massive portico, Sir Percy's magnificent bays were impatiently pawing the ground. At the top of the stairs, just after she had taken final leave of her host, she suddenly saw Chauvelin. He was coming up the stairs slowly and rubbing his thin hands very softly together. There was a curious look on his mobile face, partly amused and wholly puzzled as his keen eyes met Marguerite's. They became strangely sarcastic. Monsieur Chauvelin, she said, as he stopped on the top of the stairs, bowing elaborately before her. My coach is outside. May I claim your arm? As gallant as ever, he offered her his arm and led her downstairs. The crowd was very great. Some of the minister's guests were departing. Others were leaning against the banisters, watching the throng as it filed up and down the wide staircase. Chauvelin, she said at last, I must know what has happened. What has happened, dear lady? He said, with affected surprise. Where? When? You are torturing me, Chauvelin. I have helped you tonight. Surely I have the right to know. What happened in the dining room at one o'clock just now? She spoke in a whisper, trusting that in the general hubbub of the crowd her words would remain unheeded by all save the man at her side. Quiet and peace reigned supreme, fair lady, at that hour. I was asleep in one corner of one sofa, and Sir Percy Blakeney in another. Nobody came into the room at all. Nobody. Then we have failed, you and I. Yes, we have failed. Perhaps. But Alma? Ah, Alma St. Just's chances hang on a thread. Pray heaven, dear lady, that that thread may not snap. Chauvelin, I worked for you sincerely, earnestly. Remember? I remember my promise. The day that the Scarlet Pimpernel and I meet on French soil, Saint-Just will be in the arms of his charming sister. Which means that a brave man's blood will be on my hands, she said, with a shudder. His blood, or that of your brother. Surely at the present moment you must hope, as I do, that the enigmatical Scarlet Pimpernel will start for Calais today. I am only conscious of one hope, citoyen. And that is... "'That Satan, your master, will have need of you elsewhere before the sun rises today.' <laughs> "'You flatter me, citoyen,' 
She had detained him for a while, midway down the stairs, trying to get at the thoughts which lay beyond that thin, fox-like mask. But Chauvelin remained urbane, sarcastic, mysterious, not a line betrayed to the poor, anxious woman, whether she need fear or whether she dared to hope. Downstairs on the landing, she was soon surrounded. Lady Blakeney never stepped from any house into her coach without an escort of fluttering human moths around the dazzling light of her beauty. But before she finally turned away from Chauvelin, she held out her hand to him with a pretty gesture of appeal which was essentially her own. Give me some hope, my little Chauvelin. With perfect gallantry, he bowed over her hand, which looked so dainty and white through the delicately transparent black lace mitten, and kissing the tips of the rosy fingers, "'Pray, heaven, that the thread may not snap,' he repeated, with his enigmatic smile. And stepping aside, he allowed the moths to flutter more closely round the candle, and the brilliant throng of the jeunesse dorée eagerly attentive to Lady Blakeney's every moment. Every movement hid the keen, fox-like face from her view. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads' The Scarlet Pimpernel. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads' The Scarlet Pimpernel. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.